0: Loft is a platform for Kubernetes self-service and multi-tenancy. Loft allows you to control Kubernetes clusters with added multi-tenancy and self-service capabilities to get more value out of Kubernetes beyond simply cluster management. It allows for cost optimization, more efficient provisioning, and other features. Lucas Gentle joins the show to talk about Kubernetes multi-tenancy and the engineering behind Loft. If you're interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, Reach out to us at sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily dot com we'd love to hear from you and bring your message to our audience. We reach over two hundred and fifty thousand developers per month. Lucas, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. The pleasure being on here.
0: yeah, it's great to have you now. We're talking today about your work with Loft. And I've done many shows on managed Kubernetes systems, and it's always interesting to see new ones come around. Tell me about the gap in the market for managed Kubernetes that was available despite the fact that there are so many options already.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, there's a whole bunch of you know providers out there that help you set up and manage Kubernetes clusters. Obviously, OpenShift, Red Hat, and then Rancher, and a whole bunch of others uh, come to mind in that space. So, yeah, very valid question. You know, Why do I need another Kubernetes management tool, I guess? I think the way I look at it is we start where they kind of end in terms of functionality, and we don't cover a lot of things that they actually cover. So it's not like, you know... Rancher or Loft, it's typically Rancher plus Loft. The way that I think about it is these tools, they help you spin up clusters, set up monitoring, logging, day two operations in different cloud platforms. We don't do any of that, right? (laughs) So with Loft, you cannot even spin up Kubernetes cluster in AWS. That's not what we do. What we help you do is when you have these clusters set up and you're already managing them with any of these tools or you're just using the plain EKS or GKE uh, by the cloud provider directly, what we help you to do is make these clusters accessible in a self-service fashion and shareable across your entire organization. So let's say you have 500 or even 5,000 engineers and they need access to Kubernetes we help you get them self service access to these shared development clusters
0: gotcha so what is required to build that kind of permissioning and sharing system for clusters
1: yeah a whole bunch of things i think you know we're touching like this kubernetes multi tenancy topic how do you host multiple Different tenants and tenant workloads in the same Kubernetes cluster. That's a really tough challenge because inherently Kubernetes is a system that, you know, I mean, of course, you know, Kubernetes has RBAC and things like that, but it's typically designed as a single tenant system. It's really hard to share Kubernetes cluster. And we automate everything around that. And so we're really putting these guardrails in place for folks. But at the same time, we also help you do it in a, in a very pleasant way for engineers. I think one of the biggest advantages that you have with Loft is that your users have a great experience when they're using the system. So they can't just even create, you know, namespaces in a self-service fashion in Kubernetes. They can even create virtual Kubernetes clusters. So. You don't want to spin up five thousand Kubernetes clusters for five thousand engineers, but for the for each individual engineer, that would be kind of ideal. Actually, what would be even more ideal is if each engineer had the permission to create ten Kubernetes clusters, right? But you know, who wants to manage that and who can afford that? It's really tough. What we let them do is spin up virtual Kubernetes clusters or simple namespaces. And inside these namespaces, they can do whatever they want. And inside these virtual Kubernetes clusters, they feel like they own the entire Kubernetes cluster. They have full access. They feel like an admin. It's, it's kind of like a feeling like being in a VM, you know? You're admin inside, but in the outside system, you still are restricted, you know, to this to this virtual layer that that you created.
0: Why isn't this kind of functionality already provided by the larger infrastructure providers like the open shifts or the ranchers
1: you know there's essentially just you know two main approaches to create virtual clusters out there at the moment one is what the the multi-tenancy uh working group in kubernetes is, is working on they're working on a standard for this but it's you know it's not ready for i think the end user at this point I know some firms and mainly the the main contributors are using it internally, but it's very tailored to their needs. What we're trying to do with vCluster, our virtual cluster distribution, is a general solution that can be easily adopted by pretty much any company. And we're pretty much the only project out there that makes this work. And vCluster is a certified Kubernetes distribution. So, you know, all the conformance tests, et cetera, that CNCF has out there, we are passing them. So you won't be able to tell a difference between, you know, a virtual cluster and a real Kubernetes cluster. I assume though <laughs> that providers like Rancher, et cetera, will in the future integrate, you know, either what the multi-tenancy group is doing or what we're doing with VCluster. Obviously we're hoping, you know, that more providers will go for the VCluster route and the approach that we're taking. But I'm pretty sure, you know Managed providers will look into virtual clusters as well eventually, but I don't think any of them is there yet.
0: I'd like to get into the engineering of Loft. So as you've mentioned, it's useful for defining these virtual clusters for smaller teams within a company to, or individuals within a company to to spin up their own Kubernetes resources. Can you describe what's going on under the hood in more detail?
1: Yeah. So essentially, you know, the way it works is we typically talk to a platform team, a central team within the organization that offers loft kind of like as a product within the company and makes that offering. They almost, you know, they take our product and our platform and they we kind of describe it as a platform for platform builders, or platform for platform engineers. You know, they're building on top of Love. They're adding things that are very customizable for their particular needs within the organization. Um, and we have to be because we're addressing you know anything from like a you know post Series B start- funded startup all the way up to you know Fortune fifty financial institutions and large car manufacturers and. We need to be very, very flexible. So, what happens is, you know, we integrate with a whole bunch of different uh, other solutions. For example, regarding authentication, we're integrating with all the standards out there LDAP, OpenID Connect. You can hook up pretty much anything, whether you're on Active Directory or you're using Okta. It's pretty straightforward to hook up single sign on to Loft. And then, what you really do as a platform team, you define Members of this you know, Active Directory group, for example, should get access to those five clusters. And they have the restriction of they can only create five namespaces and three virtual clusters. And altogether, each one of these members in this Active Directory group can use 20 gigabytes of memory. And then Loft is enforcing these things. Another interesting thing that loft actually adds to this is cost optimization. Because a big part of this is when you're nailing the developer experience, when you're nailing self-service, when it's very smooth for you know hundreds or even thousands of engineers to start using this this internal platform that you're building for your for your engineering teams, they will spin up a lot of things, right? And They will deploy a lot of workloads. And the big question comes up is how do we control cost and how do we limit cost? Of course, you can limit engineers in terms of CPU and memory, but one of the biggest issues that companies have is figure out, can we delete this? Is this idle? Is anyone still using this? You know, it's really tough to make those decisions. So we have a feature in the product as well that's is highly customizable, but it, what it does uh, effectively, it monitors traffic to these virtual clusters or to these namespaces that the engineers are creating. And when they're not being used, we put them to sleep automatically. That means, you know, engineer stops working at 8 PM uh, at night and 30 minutes later or so, whatever you configure, that virtual cluster or namespace goes to sleep, doesn't cost any resources, no CPU and memory cost at all, but the entire state, everything that the engineer has created inside of there is still preserved. And when they're starting to work again at you know 8 a.m. in the morning the next day, things spin up again. And that means throughout the entire night, right? Lots of hours through the entire weekend. It's typically 70 to 80% of time that people are actually not coding. and all of that time, things are not costing any money to the organization. And it also allows your engineers to have like 10 virtual clusters in parallel, preserve the state and then they don't have to reset them and throw them away because only the one that they're actually working with right now is going to run. The other ones are going to automatically go to sleep. It's, it's a very, very interesting kind of feature that we are on, on top of the self-service provisioning part.
0: So is that to say that these are only useful for test clusters? Because if, if these are clusters that you want to make fall asleep when the developer is not working on it, I mean that wouldn't be really useful for production clusters, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in production, you know, you're gonna have different like autoscalers and things that you know you really. It, like configure for each individual microservice, and you want to make sure they're highly available, but then they're scaled elastically. You know, that's what you want to do in production. In pre-production, so when you're thinking of all these development and CICD workloads and things like that, a lot of that needs a much. You don't want to set up all of this auto-scaling and things like that right from the start, right? That's not typically how each developer starts out with a new project, right? You want something that does it on autopilot and does it more rougher, but it, that's completely fine in pre-production. That's kind of our main use case at this point. We see that some customers are exploring virtual clusters in production as well, because they do have security and isolation benefits there and help you with, you know, for example, hosting uh, customer workloads in multi-tenant clusters. But our core product is currently targeted towards you know, pre-production workloads. The best use case, you know, I can give for this is people may be very familiar with, you know, review applications, right? You create a pull request, your CI CD tests run through and you have an instance of your product being deployed to some demo URL so that a QA tester or even a, you know, potential end user or someone can hands on test the application. If you have that review app spun up and you have that pull request created, How long does it take till actually someone takes a look at this? Maybe a week? Maybe three weeks? That review instance is going to be up and running for all that time, right? Sleep mode is going to put it to sleep automatically and then wakes it up as soon as someone hits that link in your GitHub or GitLab and then fires up that namespace or virtual cluster again so that you can actually access the application a second later. And that's that's very, very powerful, that automated mode. But yeah, completely agree. Like in production, you want to have like different auto-scaling systems. You, you're not going to use sleep mode in
0: production. So the open source project that this functionality is based on is vCluster, correct?
1: vCluster, yeah, is, is the core for spinning up virtual clusters. It's a certified Kubernetes distro. So it's like a distribution, just like, uh, I guess, Minikube is a distribution, EKS, GKE. You know, everybody creates their flavors. Rancher has their Rancher Kubernetes engine, RKE. And we have vCluster. That's the only certified distribution for virtual clusters. So clusters that run inside of other clusters are <laughs> the only distribution who is able to do this. And that's completely open source.
0: And hasn't there been other efforts at having virtualized Kubernetes clusters inside of inside of another Kubernetes cluster? Yeah, I
1: think the, the biggest difference from what we're doing with vCluster and what other people have tried in the beginning of exploring this like kind of nested cluster approach is we let you spin up these clusters with very minimal pr- privileges. So what happens is you're essentially just creating a single pod a single deployment and a service that you can connect to and so you have a api server of kubernetes and a, and a minimal control plane inside a container and then you have our vcluster Synker in another container and they talk to each other and then you talk to that virtualized api server the big difference to other solutions is how do we actually you know when i create containers with my virtual cluster where are they run right That is the biggest difference. There have been previous approaches where, you know, when you start a container in your virtual Kubernetes cluster, that container runs inside, you know, that API control container. And then you have a whole bunch of like issues regarding performance, having to run Docker inside, uh, you know, or making the Docker host on the node available to that particular container. And that's all really tough. What we try to do is create virtual clusters with minimal privileges and minimal changes to your underlying cluster. And that's why vCluster is the only solution that works pretty much out of the box in all kinds of Kubernetes platforms, right? So whether you're having a localhost Minikube cluster or you're having a full-blown, highly secure, air-gapped cluster uh, running in AWS, I'm very confident vCluster is going to work Either way, you know it works in pretty much any Kubernetes cluster. Of course, there's some minimal requirements to it. You know, we don't require you to make any changes to the underlying nodes, to the underlying cluster configuration. We don't even require like a central control plane that the admin needs to deploy. If you today already have access to an isolated namespace inside Kubernetes, you're not cluster admin, but you're able to spin up your application then you're typically able to spin up a virtual cluster as well. That's the beauty of virtual clusters and, and our vCluster implementation of it.
0: What was your motivation for building Loft?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. So we actually started out, you know, with a project called DevSpace. That's an open source developer tool for Kubernetes. You can find it on devspace.sh. It's available. The source code is available on GitHub. It's a um, you know, Apache Two license. It's a client-only tool that you download and that essentially replaces your, you know, Docker Compose. It's like Docker Compose but for Kubernetes. It allows you to, you know, run a single command to stand up a microservices application that consists of, you know, ten microservices, pulling them in from different Git repositories, and then establishing that hot reloading and fast. Debugging development workflow with these microservices, integration testing them, debugging them. But instead of doing that with Docker, like Docker Compose does locally, we do it with a Kubernetes cluster that may run locally or remote. That's kind of how we started out by building that project. We originally built that project in you know my previous company uh, when we were still doing you know custom programming services and, and consulting work in the Kubernetes space. We built that tool essentially for ourselves and. It got pretty popular and we, you know, thought about, huh, interesting. You know, if people are starting to use remote clusters, well, let's say they start using local clusters, they're gonna run in a whole bunch of issues. Because not everybody is a is a Kubernetes expert, right? But if you're using remote clusters, it gets very expensive really quickly if you're handing out individual clusters to everybody and you have central admins managing all these hundreds of clusters, and then we are thinking, okay. What's the right approach to share clusters and make these, you know, operations around self-servicing a lot of users that start using these new, you know, cloud native development tools like DevSpace is. And there's a whole bunch of others. There's like Scaffold from Google. Hilt is another great one? And there's like hundreds of other tools popping up that you can use to, you know, really do... Kubernetes native development, moving from that direct Java execution or from that Docker Compose workflow towards a more Kubernetes, more cloud native workflow. And if you do that, you do have that challenge around, you know, managing that access and self-servicing all these users. And that's essentially when we started, you know, working on this company and we wanted to really solve this problem.
0: So another project that you're working on within Loft is JS policy, which is a a policy engine. Is a policy engine necessary for making the Loft product that that you've been describing so far?
1: Yeah, so policy is definitely an important part and admission control uh, in general. Obviously, you know if you're looking at the the policy space, the admission control space, there's you know open policy agent as the most established solution out there, the most advanced you know, project out there. They were the earliest one uh, in the space and it took quite a few years for the number two to appear, which is uh, Kivano. And with JS Policy, we created a third one now. It's definitely important to have policies in place. A lot of our customers that use Loft are using a policy agent because the guardrails that we're putting in place are sufficient for a lot of things, but they're more complicated things that you want to ensure on top of that that you can only do with admission control and you need a framework to do that with so we've gotten a lot of questions around integrating open policy agent into loft, but we've also you know when we were speaking to to customers and you know we talked to over a hundred companies that have uh, started using our tooling at this point. We saw that there are some issues around writing these policies, maintaining these policies, and then frank, quite frankly, just, you know, operating a policy agent because it's such a large system. And if you're just wanting some few additional guardrails in place in your pre port environments, you may want something more lightweight and easier to maintain, easier to set up, easier to get started with. And that's essentially why we started working on JS policy. You know, the idea was essentially, hey, why are people using Rego, which is the, the language that Open policy agent is using to define policies, when they could use a more, you know, popular and understandable language uh, like JavaScript? I think one thing that we kind of leaned to as an example was actually Nginx's kind of history, right? X had this extension module where you could write uh, Lua code to extend custom functionality, custom routing, and things like that in Nginx. Uh, I was actually using that several years before, and it was a little bit of a pain because like, Lua is obviously not the most common language, <laughs> right? And feels a little antiquated and inflexible this, these days. So they actually integrated uh, JavaScript at, at some point and made it possible instead of using Lua to use JavaScript. You know, there's like V8, which is Google's JavaScript execution engine, which which runs in your you know Google Chrome and, and a lot of other browsers and pretty much in a, in a lot of environments that execute JavaScript. So it's very easy to, to run that. It's obviously battle tested, highly optimized because they use in in the browser and when nginx used javascript and i was playing around with that i'm like oh my gosh the experience is so much better so we were thinking hey can't we do the same in a policy space can't we create a project that is more lightweight it's built on javascript has an easy you know getting started path but also makes it easier to maintain and share policies because there's already existing tooling and ecosystem in place right you have like npm as a package manager you have npmjs as a central repository. A lot of companies already have their internal npm registries where they can share packages with. So it makes it much much easier to share policies when you're thinking about testing policies. Well, there's so many testings, rock solid. You know, unit integration testing tools in in the JavaScript and you know extending to the TypeScript ecosystem as well. And then you get static typing as well. So we're like, that's actually perfect to build something like this. Uh, with JavaScript. So although JS policy is in itself written in Golang, (laughs) obviously, like everything in the Kubernetes space seems to be, but the actual policies that you're writing are written in JavaScript. And that's kind of what what JS policy does. And JS policy is integrated in Loft. uh, So it's for customers, pretty much a no-brainer to get started with adding policies. But of of course, we still play very nicely with Open Policy Agent. And if People are already having, you know, hundreds of policies in in OPA. There's no need for them to rewrite everything in JS policy. It's just going to work out of the box in Loft as well.
0: Very cool. So can you talk more about what the setup involves for a user who's deploying the self-service namespaces, the ability to, to spin up these virtual namespaces across like a large enterprise?
1: Yeah, so the setup complexity really uh, varies depending on you know how complicated you need it, how big your enterprise is, and how uh, distributed, for example, your teams are. In the very easiest case, uh, you know, let's say you're uh, you're not even an enterprise, or you just you know, let's say you're a startup, or you are a uh, enterprise that just wants to run a POC with one of their R and D teams. The easiest setup is to just deploy it to deploy Loft to a single cluster and then make that very same cluster available uh, to engineers. So you're running Loft alongside the workloads that your engineers are gonna spin up. So you have a namespace that runs Loft, and then you have all these other namespaces that users are creating, and then you have virtual clusters potentially inside of these user-created namespaces we do have a really nice cli to deploy loft it, it, you literally download it it's, like a, it's it's a single binary you put it in your path and then you run loft start and all you need is a kubernetes cluster you have a kube context so if you can run you know kubectl get namespaces or kubectl get pods any of these commands then you're good to go you run loft start It's going to investigate your cluster so it's going to see hey is this a remote cluster is this a local cluster is it running in gke does it support load balancers you know it does a couple of these like pre-flight checks and then it configures the values for helm deployment of course you can also deploy loft directly via helm but it's usually easier to go through that loft start command in the beginning because it helps you determine the right values to set things up then deploys the application and then starts port forwarding So you can immediately access the UI, log in via the Loft CLI and get started. And then the next thing for you would be, you know, hooking up a domain and then hooking up your authentication system and then give other users access to the system uh, and let them explore it. And then more advanced scenarios, uh, you typically don't want to have, you, you want to treat Loft more like a production service, Loft itself. So you want to separate it from these workloads. You typically don't want to have like if you're a large enterprise and you have like thousands of engineers that need access to to, to Kubernetes and to Loft, then you typically run Loft as a production service, and you want it to always be available, and uh, you want to you know have monitoring and logging for it in place. And these workloads that engineers are spinning up these you know ephemeral uh, virtual clusters for CI/CD. Uh, these dev namespaces that engineers are debugging uh, with, those things should run in separate clusters. And then you deploy Loft as a production service and you're connecting five or 10 or 20 different other Kubernetes clusters, which are then supposed to be available for your engineers. And in the most advanced setups, we also support geographically distributed teams with a feature called Direct Cluster Endpoint. That feature is part of our enterprise offering. And what it essentially solves is latency issues for distributed teams. So imagine you have an engineering team in the US and you have another engineering team in India, right? And you spin up a Kubernetes cluster to host your teams in the US, and you spin up another Kubernetes cluster in India for your teams in India, right? But Loft itself also needs to run somewhere, right? So let's say Loft also runs in the US in your production cluster there. What would happen for your engineers in India because it, you know Loft is kind of like an API gateway in a way. So when your engineers in India want to talk to their cluster in India, the request first goes to Loft, which is in the US, and then goes back to the Kubernetes cluster, which is in India, right? Obviously, that's a round trip around the world and not very efficient, a lot of latency. So what Direct Cluster Endpoint allows you to do is when you enable this feature, we synchronize certain things into all of these connected clusters that you are managing with Loft and that you make accessible for your engineers, and it connects your engineer directly with the cluster without having that round trip. So your engineers in India, if they're working with the cluster in India, they would directly work with it and all the information about these users and their permissions would be kept in sync, you know, between the main loft instance and that cluster in India. So the cluster in India can do the you know authentication, authorization, and all these guardrails that are in place, it can do these themselves without having to contact the central instance, which obviously reduces latency and also has a benefit you know, regarding resilience of the entire system because you really have like a, a, a very distributed setup for Loft. So even if one of your connected clusters goes down or your central instance goes down, you'll still be able to use your existing cluster in India, for example. That's very, very powerful as well. That's the most advanced kind of setup for Loft. But in the easiest case, it's really just downloading the binary, running Loft start, opening the UI, playing around with it. Uh, you can even test Loft in a Minikube cluster on in a local host cluster. Obviously, you can't make it accessible for your fellow engineers, but it's a good way to kind of get started with things. And we do have a feature called user impersonation. So even if you spin it up on your local laptop in a local host Kubernetes cluster to test around with, you could create a demo user to test the permissions and the guardrails and then set some things up for that user, create the self-service experience, set these guardrails in place, and then impersonate the user and test that experience for that particular user. It's very powerful to kind of you know have this initial exploration with Loft.
0: What's your process for debugging Loft, given that there's a lot of edge cases that can arise when you're doing something as complicated as spinning up virtual namespaces?
1: Yeah, I think first and foremost, we're super accessible to our customers. So what we typically do with a lot of our customers is with all enterprise customers that allow that from their company policy is we set up things like Slack Connect, you know, uh, we are available to them to, you know, essentially debug issues with them. vCluster at this point is, is a very stable solution, so we don't get a lot of issues around, you know, virtual clusters not working. But if there are edge cases where, you know, there are maybe issues with scheduling workloads inside the virtual cluster, or you have things like, you know, recently we had things like, you know, if people want to use volume snapshots or pot disruption budgets and vcluster was not quite uh, supporting them yet and in the way that these users needed it they can just open issues on github as well even if they're just using the open source vcluster distribution we also have a public slack channel you know we're very very accessible on that end in terms of debugging yeah it can it can be tough sometimes when customers run into or users of the open source solution run into issues because you know Kubernetes in itself is so hard to debug <laughs> a lot of times. You know when someone tells us, "Hey, you know, like we're trying to spin up this and the virtual cluster is not starting," I would probably say like seventy percent of the time it has not even to do anything with vcluster itself. It rather has to do with the underlying Kubernetes cluster. You know your volume can't be bound. You don't have like dynamic provisioning for persistent volumes set up. You know, and it's really hard for users at this point to have that level of deep knowledge in Kubernetes to see, hey, why is this not working? I think there's there are some solutions in the space that kind of address that observability part and debugging your clusters and seeing what is not set up in a correct way. And I think those solutions definitely deserve a lot of uh, attention and credit in the future because I see that as as a... Uh, you know, from our customer base, definitely it's a challenging problem for a lot of folks. And of course, you know, we're, we're pretty deep down <laughs> in Kubernetes. So, you know, if, if issues arise in our own development workflow, we're usually very quick at, at seeing what's going wrong here. But then if you have a third party involved, we need to ask for a lot of logs and a lot of information about the cluster setup before we can even make a guess about what could go wrong, just because Kubernetes has so many moving pieces. So. Yeah, debugging anything as Kubernetes is a challenge.
0: Is it important to instrument these clusters with observability agents and have good monitoring around them, or are they mostly treated as dispensable and therefore not worth observing? Yeah,
1: I, th- I think there's like two two different levels. I think the the typical like production level, you know, monitoring, alerting, and things like that that can get critical as well in pre-production when your engineers, when they're really switching over to cloud native development workflows and they start using Kubernetes in their day-to-day operations when they're building uh, applications, it's very important not to block them, right? Because obviously you want your engineers to be as productive as possible, so these clusters need to be up and running. It's kind of like, imagine it like a you know cloud IDE, right? If you switched everything over to cloud IDEs and then your cloud ID is down for a day, right? Nobody can program for a day pretty much, right? I mean, sure, they could set things up locally again, right? But it would probably, you know, cost them like two or three hours or like half the day is gone by setting everything up locally again. So switching to a cloud ID, it's really important the cloud ID is always available and your repositories always spin up and you know the same thing <laughs> counts for what we're doing with Loft, right? These f- these these clusters uh, the, uh, these clusters and the workloads and the virtual clusters and namespaces you're spinning up are inherently ephemeral, but they become mission critical in a way, like the underlying infrastructure hosting these ephemeral workloads. You know there should be monitoring, alerting, and observability in place for your IT teams that actually need to ensure they have like a service contract in the end with your developers, because your developers switched over to Kubernetes, switched from their local Docker-based workflow to remote EKS cluster, and they expect these EKS clusters to be available. One of the advantages is though, if you you know, let's say since these these applications should be, you know, spun up in a replicable fashion, like really repeatable, right? So you have you should be able to stand up your stack with a single command in a minute or two, right? So if worst case, you know, we've seen that recently, right? An AWS data zone goes down, right? And then that cluster is not available anymore, it should be very easy and love to just let a user access a second Kubernetes cluster that is running in a different AWS availability zone or in a different region so that your engineers can just spin up their workloads there again. I think that is the benefit of hosting ephemeral workloads versus being responsible for hosting actual production workloads. But yeah, it's similar similar thoughts around resilience uh, that that you have in production as well. What happens if this zone goes down? Right, we need to shift workloads over to this to this other zone potentially.
0: There are these these ephemeral environments for CI/CD and testing, but are there any like production level use cases for ephemeral environments? Maybe like just rapid scalability of. Some kind of machine learning job or something like that?
1: Yeah, that's that's actually a very, very interesting question. So if you're thinking about virtual clusters in itself, right, what you can effectively do. So you can do two things of virtual clusters in production. And we've seen both, you know, explored by customers at this point. One is you have these large multi-tenant clusters, you know, with lots of different workloads and they're getting really complicated to manage, right? And they're really like that API server is under fire. You're having a lot of custom resources in Kubernetes. There are a lot of requests to the API server all the time. The controller manager is under high pressure. You know, etcd may even become a bottleneck, right? That's like, everything is super critical. What you can do with virtual clusters is you can create boundaries and you can create that additional layer on top to kind of make the underlying cluster less under pressure because 90% of the requests that happen inside the virtual cluster remain inside the virtual cluster. It's kind of like a VM and a physical machine, right? Certain things are shared, but other things are totally encapsulated. And what happens with vCluster is it has its own API server and its own data store. You know, it could be etcd, it could be SQLite or MySQL, but it's separate from the underlying clusters etcd and the underlying clusters API server. So if you can reduce, if you can take away 90% of the requests on the underlying cluster, the underlying cluster can be much dumber and it means it can scale much further out than it could without that kind of like, we're effectively sharding that cluster in these mini virtual clusters running on top of it and they can get bigger as well over time, uh, but they're going to be much, much smaller than than the real underlying thing. I think that is one interesting part. And then the second part is what we already see people um, planning to Publicly launch and put in production this year. We have two customers already working on this. Is uh, hosting customers and you know, let's say you are you have a managed service, you you hosting an instance of your product for each one of your customers, right? You typically you have two options of Kubernetes, either. You create separate Kubernetes clusters for each customer, which is really expensive, hard to manage, right? But obviously great from a security standpoint. Your customers entirely isolated into separate Kubernetes clusters. You can change the version of Kubernetes independently, do upgrades independently. You know, if something fails, it only fails for that particular cluster and that particular customer. But again, super expensive, really hard to manage. If you have a multi tenant cluster instead, then you typically use namespaces in Kubernetes. Much, much cheaper, much, much more flexible, it's easier to onboard new customers, much, much quicker. But you have the challenge that when you're upgrading this cluster, dang, that's like super critical, right? (laughs) You have like like 80 customers running in this cluster or a thousand customers, you know? And then when you're upgrading things, you're upgrading it for everybody. Really challenging. And it's really hard to isolate these customers from each other if you're putting vcluster as a layer in between and loft helps you you know obviously to do that then it's much much safer to operate these different customers and their you know the application you spin up for them because they're running in a separate virtual cluster and each one of these virtual cluster has its own api server so even if they would get full access to the api server by exploiting some bug in your application they would still not reach the underlying cluster and if you're upgrading a virtual cluster and something fails, it only affects that one particular virtual cluster and that one customer rather than everybody. so you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You have the benefit of these this isolation and better security and you know better encapsulation and and separation of things, but at the same time, you're effectively running in the same Kubernetes cluster in the same underlying infrastructure. And that can save a lot of cost and create like this, you know, dynamic environment that you may be looking for for, you know, dynamically scaling up and down your customers and really be very resource efficient. I think those are super interesting use cases in production. And then in another interesting use case you've seen a bit as well, and we're using it for our own product for this as well, is sales demos, right? So. Let's say a sales team just needs to spin up an instance of your application and demo it to, to the customer. Maybe you want to give them access right, as a trial account or something like that. That's usually a pain and a burden on the engineering team to set that up for sales. Uh, with Loft, it's pretty straightforward. We have these virtual cluster and namespace templates. So you define a template, you pre-equip it with data, you put your application in there, right? And then your sales team can effectively, you can put a nice UI for them on top of as well, but you can also give them direct access to Loft, and they do two clicks. The application spins up, they hit a URL, and they're ready to give that demo. That's a very interesting use case as well. I wouldn't call that production in a way. I guess it's a little bit production, but it's not as critical as hosting your customer workloads. But I'm sure there's like, you know, hundreds of other cases that we haven't even explored. But those are the ones that we've kind of seen in our customer base so far. But again, we're just we're just getting started. We are we're on this for a little bit over a year. And there's there's so much more to do. We're just getting started in this space.
0: What's your vision for the future of the company?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's exciting, you know, to build a a, Quickly growing and and a startup that is really put to use a product that is put to use by by customers. I think we really want to be the leader for Kubernetes multi tenancy. So we want to be one of the leading solutions in you know when it's about sharing clusters and sharing workloads and making sure they're securely isolated. I think we're in a good path to become a leader in that space. And obviously, I see VCluster as becoming the standard for spinning up virtual clusters in any Kubernetes environment. Again, we talked about this at the beginning of the conversation. There are potentially so many other vendors that could integrate vCluster as an open source project into their products. And I would really be super excited to see that happening. I think being the leader for these two topics, multi-tenancy and virtual clusters, uh, I think that's what we're out to do. Really increasing, you know, that level of developer experience and self-service. You know, a requirement for that is that multi-tenancy and this level of virtualization is solved in a way. And, you know, we want to be the essential building block for this.
0: Well, is there anything else you'd like to discuss that we haven't explored about Loft?
1: I think we talked about a whole bunch of different topics. Uh, I think we, we covered a lot of ground today. Maybe one thing that's interesting and kind of upcoming is we're actually launching a plugin system for vCluster to make it more extensible and more flexible and customizable. So if you're having use cases and if you're trying vCluster today and you're saying, hey, you know, what we said earlier, you know, volume snapshots are not covered in the future. Again, we're, we're trying to be a vendor that supports the cluster to become uh, a standard solution, but we don't necessarily need to be the one that implements every use case. With the plugin system, if we don't support anything today, obviously you can raise a PR and you know see if we want to incorporate it in the core, but if we can't, or it's like something that may be too far on the edge or too specific to your, custom resource definitions, et cetera, then you'll be able to use that plugin system to create a plugin for vCluster. You know, that's gonna be the next level of extensibility for this virtualization layer. I think creating that standardized interface for extending what a virtual cluster should do and how it should behave and how it should work uh, launch workloads. That's super, something I'm super excited about. I can't wait to to launch this and yeah, that's gonna come up in just, you know, a week or two.
0: Cool. Well, congratulations on all the development and I look forward to seeing the continued success of Loft.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Jeff. And uh yeah, I hope to hope to meet you in person one day. But maybe at the uh, KubeCon Europe. Not not sure if you're gonna be there. I know things are kind of in the air right now with COVID obviously being uh, constantly changing <laughs> the situations. But thank you so much for having me. It was a was a great pleasure chatting with you today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.